Hey y'all, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's good to have you guys back. Uh, did you have a good Thanksgiving break? Was it restful? Some of you more so than others. Did you eat a lot of food? Excellent. I asked this at the leadership meeting last night. Does anyone here do anything a little bit different as far as food goes for Thanksgiving? Uh, what do you got? Tamales for Thanksgiving. I like that. Chinese. Anyone else do anything uh, different from the traditional Thanksgiving turkey? I think Keenan said his family, what, does Vietnamese food? That's pretty cool. Uh, a lot of times over the last few years, Missy and I, uh, we've been by herself and with Taylor, and we decided to mix it up a little bit. And the last couple of years, we have done steak and crab legs for our Thanksgiving. Because the Lord is good. Um, but this year, we, we, my parents were in town, and they asked us to come down for Thanksgiving and hang out with them. And so uh, we went more the traditional route of hanging out with my family, playing some games, eating. And uh, I want to show you a quick picture of my family. Can, I, can you put that up for me, Becca? Hey, okay. This is... Not all of Tom's family, I think there are 12 of us, 11, whatever, at this one at Thanksgiving, but on the right here is my dad, and there we are, and some nieces and nephews, and my brother hiding in the back there and stuff. But every like uh, holiday, my family loves to do these very formalized pictures where we go stand outside and there are trees in the background. And it's all staged and it's not real like you always do in pictures and stuff. And so this is what we look like when we're looking pretty. Uh, Becca, can you throw up the next picture? This is what my family is a little bit more like when we're just hanging out and stuff. We're sitting around our dining room table. Uh, we cracked out some Bananagrams. I'm sitting there playing. I hate Bananagrams with a passion because I can't spell. And I just get destroyed every single time. I have a master's degree. And I was even working on my message, message today. I'm typing in words, and I'm just trying to get it close enough so spell check will actually tell me the right word. <laughs> Forget Bananagrams. Uh, my, my dad, my brother, niece, nephew, whatever, they're over there playing a game called Rook. It's basically Christian uh, rummy or something like that. It, my, my family wasn't allowed to play with cards when I was a kid. Now they don't care anymore, but that was the thing. My, my parents are in their 80s, so think more your grandparents and stuff. But around our dining room table, this is where real life happens. This is where fun happens. This is where conversation happens occasionally an argument or two happens because that's what family does real life takes place around the dinner table and it's in these moments around that dinner table that leave a lasting mark on your life this semester, we have been talking about making your mark based on what Jesus said to a couple average fishermen, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for men. 
these average guys would go on to become Jesus' disciples. And they would change the world. i got to confess something to you. When we started the series, Making Your Mark, I knew that many of you in our group, you, you want to leave your mark on this world. You want to do something awesome in your profession. You want to be remembered, and I don't have a problem with that. But the truth is that we were never called to leave our mark on this world. We were created to leave God's mark. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at a time when Jesus and His disciples were gathered around a dinner table. And Jesus did something so unique and so beautiful that He left His mark on each and every one of our, their lives. Tonight, our text is going to be found in John chapter 13. And it's here that Jesus and His disciples were celebrating what is called Passover. It's... Without going into a ton of detail, basically it's the Jewish equivalent of our Thanksgiving. It's one of three major Jewish holidays. It celebrates the liberation of the Israelites out of slavery from the Egyptians. And it's called Passover because God came in to judge the Egyptians for having Jewish slaves. The Israelites, they painted blood over their doors, of, over the doors of their homes. And God's judgment passed over those who were under the blood. In turn, God's people were set free. And so, every year, families and friends would gather together for a time of celebration and thanksgiving for the Lord rescuing His people. We need to understand what we're observing in the story we're going to be reading. You see, chapter 13 of John begins some of Jesus' most important teachings that He had with His disciples. See, previously up to this moment, everything Jesus did was for public consumption. It was for the people in the country. But this, this teaching was specifically for His disciples. And this teaching is basically their final exam. This dinner table experience was their capstone class to getting their proverbial discipleship degree. You see, in Jewish culture, the process of discipleship can be broken down into three parts. The first part is the calling. When the rabbi or the teacher says to a potential disciple, come, follow me, like Jesus did in Mark chapter 1. The second part of discipleship is the following. The disciples would follow in the teacher's footsteps. They would follow so closely, listening, observing, 
learning everything, every action, every thought that the teacher had, that they were said to have walked in the dust of their master. And then finally, the third step in discipleship is the sending out. The disciples would leave the rabbi and go out to teach others what they had learned. In essence, they would then become teachers themselves. You see, this is what was happening that night as they sat around the Passover table. And the disciples don't even realize what's going on. You see, in a few hours, Jesus was about to go to the cross and return to heaven. Jesus was taking those last moments to prepare them, to send them out. Students, we will always be Jesus' disciples, but the purpose of discipleship is to be sent. Jesus doesn't need proverbial followers forever. He needs people he can send. That's where Chi Alpha gets its names from. Christus Apostoli, Christ's ambassadors, Christ's sent ones. And so tonight we're going to read the text. I nor- Normally I kind of skim over it, but this is good stuff. And I don't want you to miss out on it. If you don't have your Bibles, I'm sure it will be on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 1, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped his towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put, a, put his robe on again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that is what I am. And since I 
And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Lord, speak tonight. As the disciples in that room, let us hear your voice and know you. Amen. From this story, there are three must-haves to be a successful disciple that we can take away from this final lesson that Jesus was giving. And I'm just going to tell you up front, and we'll dive into them. How about that? The first lesson, know the Father. Know the Father. The second, we need an intimacy with Jesus. And then finally, to be successful, we need an interdependence with each other. Let's go ahead and tackle the first one here. We have to know the Father. Uh, in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. I think that we could all agree that nothing really surprised Jesus, right? You weren't going to sneak up on him. It wasn't gonna, you weren't going to scare him or anything like that. We see over and over again throughout the Gospels that Jesus already knew what was going to happen, and he knew what people were thinking. And you see, because Jesus knew, he behaved accordingly. And I think a lot of times we like to chalk it up, oh, he was God, it's, that's how he knew everything. We need to understand that Jesus made a conscious choice to come to this earth and surrendered some of his rights as a God. And we need to understand that his knowledge, what he knew, came directly from our Heavenly Father. If you go back to John chapter 5, Jesus is there, he's being harassed by the Pharisees, and he explains to them that his power, his miracles, his wisdom comes from knowing the Father. He said in verse 19, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And in the chapter right before this, in chapter 12, Jesus says, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life, so I say whatever the Father tells me. Students, 
I like that one. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. You think about doing something that runs contrary to it, you need to understand, you do something else, it's leading you not to eternal life. And so, we too can know the Father like Jesus. We can. We can know the Father through his words. Jesus is forever quoting the Scripture because he knows it came from his Father. We can know the Father through his characteristics. We can know the Father through his faithfulness that we see through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be honest with you. I've been writing messages for a long, long time. And I always imagined I'd get really good and I'd get quick at them, and that never happened. It takes me forever to write a message. And I'll be honest, I get frustrated a lot. I get frustrated when I don't have a topic. I get frustrated when I have a topic, but I don't have a text. I still get frustrated when I have a topic and a text, but I don't have the points or I don't know exactly where I'm supposed to go. And so I'm forever frustrated. And that's how I felt Saturday night as I was driving back from Springfield. I was talking to God. I knew a little bit about what I wanted to speak on. I didn't have full direction. And you ever have prayer that's more complaining than actual prayer? That's where I find myself. I'm sitting there complaining to God about stuff, and I felt the Lord basically say to me, Tom, do you know me? You react the same way every single time. Whether I give you a topic right away or not, whether I give you the Scripture right away or not, whether I give you the points right away or not, every time, Tom, I show up. And if you know me, if you know what I have done and I will do, and you know who you are in me as my child, then start to act like it. See, because Jesus knew the Father, his identity came from the Father. And every word And every action flowed out from that fact. See, when you know the Father, you know your identity, you're going to know your purpose. And there is a freedom and security that comes from knowing that the Heavenly Father has our back. It's a simple little example here, but not last summer, but the summer before. Missy and I were down visiting my brother in Springfield and We were at the pool, we were hanging out, and Taylor's playing in the little baby pool, you know, just splashing around and stuff, having fun. And Missy and I and my brother are just sitting there talking and stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, on my periphery, I see this little girl jump into the pool and sink like a rock. And so, of course, I look over, oh, crud, that's my kid. And so I dive under, grab her, lift her up, And she's just laughing. She's just, ah, you know, do it again, Daddy. I'm like, you could have drowned. It's like, I wasn't going to drown. What what do you mean you were going to get me? 
And you see, to you and me, because we're older and we count what might happen, that comes across reckless, doesn't it? Maybe a little stupid. But it's not reckless. You see, she acted in a way that was true to my nature. She dove in knowing that her father was going to be there to save her. That I would never let her drown. That I got her. And guess what? So does your heavenly father. You see, there is a greater security. You know, when our security in the Lord is greater, our powerful... Oh, wow, I messed that one up. Let me try again. The greater our security in our Heavenly Father, the more powerful our service is. The more we're willing to do, the more we're willing to step out in faith because we know that our Father's got our back. It brings us to the second key to being a successful disciple. And that's an intimacy with Jesus. Let me give you a little more context to what we were looking at in the story. When the Passover meal takes place, the leader of the home, the most prominent person, obviously in this case, it's Jesus, would sit at the center of the table. And the rest of the people there, the guests, would be arranged by authority, importance and by age with the smallest children hanging out on the edges. What happened would have been shocking for the disciples. Not that they were getting their feet washed, but the fact that a person in authority would get up and do something like that. You see, knowing his authority, knowing where he came from, and where he was going, Jesus gets up from that place of honor and takes on the role of a servant. And you see, it's not just any servant. It is the lowliest servant. The job of foot washer was the lowest ranking position in a household. In this story, it parallels Jesus leaving heaven, coming down from his throne to earth to serve us. No one wanted to be a foot washer. Let me just say it. First, feet really are amazing, intricate, complex constructions of God. Can we have first picture, Becca? Pretty little feet. Feet consist of 42 muscles, 26 bones, 33 joints, and and they're made up of at least like 50 ligaments. Okay? So these things are pretty amazing how God has constructed us. A few years ago, I did a wedding where part of the ceremony, the husband washed the wife's feet. It actually was pretty beautiful. That being said, about as unrealistic as you can get. 
Because let me tell you, those feet had been pedicured, whatever, soaked. They looked pretty. Feet are gross. How many of you think feet are gross? In the next minute, I will prove to you they are. You see, there are a lot of messed up feet in this world. Okay? Oh, yes. It's coming. It's, I didn't even, trust me, I could have gone a lot worse. I could have gone a lot worse. You see, there are calloused feet. Put that one. Yep. There are dry feet. There are cracked feet. There are feet with bunions. There are feet with nail fungus, corns, blisters, hammer toes, heel spurs. Can't forget our favorite of athlete's foot. That's always a good one, too. And you see, that's today, okay? Back in the day, people didn't wear socks and shoes. There were no pedicures. There were no air or gel soles to walk on. Just a piece of hard leather. And you see, people back then had to walk everywhere they went. They were wearing these open-toed sandals. And quite honestly, they were walking on the same roads that all the animals were pooping on. They're nasty. And Jesus' disciples had literally walked thousands of miles with him during his ministry on earth. And you know what? I bet their feet hurt. Washing people's feet was the dirtiest of jobs. It was a job no one wanted, but you know what? It also ministered to a part of a person that was most in pain. Let's get those things off. I don't. I can see the reflection. I'm like, <laughs> even I don't want to look at that. All right. You need to understand, students, that washing the disciples' feet was the physical manifestation of Jesus' purpose here on earth. You see, Jesus always ministers to the dirtiest, most painful parts of people. Areas that no one else can or will bring healing to, Jesus will go there. And Jesus also gives his best even when people don't deserve it. As we already covered tonight, Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going to happen, what people thought, what people were going to do, and he still gave people their best. His best. I mentioned to you earlier, uh, the guest of honor was in the middle of the table, and those next to him were the, in the spots of most importance. Do you know who sat in that honored position next to Jesus Christ that day? Judas, yes. In verse 2, it says that Satan had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Judas had made himself an enemy of Jesus, and yet we see that Jesus ministered to his needs and gave him the very best. It's not about what people deserve, folks. It's not like the rest of the disciples deserved Jesus to wash their feet. They all would abandon him. They would all leave him. 
Peter would deny even knowing him. And yet this intimate act on Jesus' part plants a seed that would later produce a huge harvest. And while Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet is a beautiful illustration, I've realized one thing over the years. People are afraid of intimacy. On some level, we all, we all have some intimacy issues. Especially guys. Ladies, I'm just be honest. Guys have some intimate issues. Uh, let me give you a little insight in what happens at guys' retreat every year. Okay? Night one, it's a bunch of guys standing around a fire. How's it going? Good. At worship, or Saturday, and even Saturday morning, people are very kind of restrained. Yes, Lord. Okay. <laughs> They'll talk to each other. Oh, good? Mm, good. <laughs> okay. Takes a little while for guys to thaw a little bit. But come the end of service on Saturday night, you always got guys that all of a sudden, they become criers. And you got like, Freaking Aaron and Ice are always hugging each other and like rocking back and forth and stuff and like praying like super loud and stuff. It's like, God can hear you. Yes, he can. Yeah. The walls break down. It just takes a while. I jest, but it's true. <laughs> People struggle. With intimacy. And I'm be honest with you, your generation has an extra challenge. Because a lot of your generation has confused intimacy with sexuality. Culture and media have twisted what real intimacy is. Let me be clear to you intimacy has nothing to do with sex has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do about being vulnerable and being open. You see, we like, to we like to be close to people, but not too close. We like to keep people at a distance. That way, we can portray the image that we want. But guess what? That image doesn't always line up with the truth. And I feel that the same can be said for a relationship with Jesus. And I think it's one of the biggest reasons why people aren't always satisfied with their relationship with Jesus. We don't feel that close to him. And it's not because he's not there. It's because we won't let him in. We are open to Jesus, and we react, we react like Peter did in verse 8. No! You will never, ever wash my feet. See, we, a lot of times, stop Jesus from ministering or serving the deep, dark, ugly parts of our lives. And for some reason... We only want him to see the pretty stuff. We're afraid that 
he won't accept us or love us if we give him the junk in our lives. But you see, that's not a relationship, folks. It's playing a role. He already knows. He knows. And guess what? He still loves us. And He still wants all of us. He wants to minister to our pain, the dirt and the ugly, and restore those areas to make them new again, to make them beautiful, to bring healing to our lives. But He can't force that on us. But He will serve us if we let Him. That brings us to the final must-have of being a successful disciple. It's an interdependence on each other. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, And since I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I, excuse me, do as I have done to you. You need to understand that Jesus leaves his disciples, including us, with two amazing gifts when he returns to heaven. And the purpose of these gifts are to strengthen us, to empower us, to support the believer, and to advance God's kingdom. The first gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And as we see in the books of, book of Acts over and over again, the believers were changed after they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They went from weak-minded, immature disciples to being empowered by the same Spirit that was in Jesus. And they changed into spiritual powerhouses that God used to do the miraculous. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, if you have not received that gift, I can't encourage you strong enough to accept it. Please talk to your life group leaders. Talk to a staff person. It can change your life. And it is, let me just repeat this for my students that have been around a while, it is a continual baptism. It is not a one-time thing. It is a daily going to that river and being baptized in God's Spirit to be empowered to do what He wants us to do. If you're dry, go back. The second gift that Jesus left His people was the gift of the church. You see in Acts that they were together they spent time together. They worshiped together. They prayed together. They were in each other's homes sharing meals. There was great joy and generosity. They enjoyed hanging out with each other. They had fun. They took care of each other. They supported each other. There was no need among those within the church because they served each other. 
You see, God created us to be in relationship with Him and with other believers. And there's no way that we can be complete and fulfilled without both of those relationships. And yet, I see a lot of Christians who try. We get a lot of Christians who I feel are like more spectators, you know? You come to something, but you don't really connect with anyone. You may go to service or maybe a life group every once in a while. But you're not having relationships with other Christians. That's called a visitor, folks. There are some people who come to service, who come to things that just take. That they will use their brothers and sisters in Christ to be filled, but they never give anything back. And let me even take this a step further. Because there seems to be a popular trend that is on the rise among Christians. And this trend is the attacking or dumping on the body of Christ. Let me just tell you, I have friends that I've known for years. And they are forever on social media, one thing or another, just attacking the church as a whole. Attacking the things they don't like. And let me just say, the body of Christ is made up of a lot of flawed, imperfect people. And the church has failed many times over the years. And we've failed in a lot of different ways. From helping the poor, to social justice, and most importantly, we've failed at loving the lost at times. And most likely, we're going to fail again. And if you are a person that has been hurt by the church, I'm sorry. I truly am. That being said, I do not believe that Jesus is pleased with his followers taking pot shots at his church. What's another name for the church that we see in the Bible? The bride. The bride of Christ. And let me just let me give you a little insight for those of you who are not married into having a bride. I love my wife with all my heart. I love you, baby. And I would literally do anything for that woman. You know, you know what I also know? I know she's not perfect. I know that she has flaws. And I know that she makes mistakes. And guess what? I still love her. And you know what? Those mistakes, those flaws are just a small part of the overall amazing woman of God that she is. 
I know she's not perfect. And yet I love her. What I'm not going to tolerate is someone trashing my wife. I'm not going to put up with someone bashing the woman I love and that I would die for. No one's going to do that. And if someone did, we have an issue. And let me say, that includes her too. I'm not going to allow my wife to bash herself. To be self-deprecating. To only focus on her negative and her flaws. My job is to help her to see the woman that she truly is. Christians attacking the church is like a person who is self-loathing, forever tearing themselves down. It doesn't produce change. It only furthers a person's destruction. Let me just tell you, everyone's, oh, the church is, you know, it's broken. The church, the system that Jesus Christ made is not broken. People are broken. That's why Jesus came to this earth. And it's also the reason that he gave us the gift of the church. Not to find perfection through the church, but to help each other through our brokenness. Get over it, folks. The church will always be messy. If you read the Bible, read First and Second Corinthians. They had issues. You want to make the church better? How many of you want to make the church better? Let me see your hands. I, I, for those of you that don't, I'm going to ignore you. That's cool. Uh, you want to ch- make the church better? Serve each other. You taking notes, write down this next sentence. If you're not serving each other, then you're not serving the Lord. Oh no, let me try that again. If you're not serving each other, then you are not serving the Lord. I have washed your feet. You ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. As I begin to wrap up, I do want to deal with one little subject, one little thing that tends to pop up a lot. It's the idea of serving out of obligation or requirement. People don't like to. How many of you do not like to be required to do something? How many of you, maybe you're not quite as motivated when you're obligated to do something? We need to get past this mindset that doing things that are required of us is a bad thing. Guess what, students? In life, you will have requirements. You will have obligations that you need to do and just, and you shouldn't do things halfway just because you don't feel like it. My job has requirements. There are days I don't feel like it. If I only did things halfway, you wouldn't be happy with me, would you? 
My wife has expectations of me as her husband. If I didn't follow through on those, she wouldn't be happy with me. I have expectations and obligations on my life as a father. It doesn't mean I do things halfway and love my daughter halfway because they are required of me. Our Lord and King has the right and the authority to require us to do whatever he wants. And yes, guess what? You should feel an obligation to do what Jesus has told you to do since he came to earth, became a man, was beaten, was abused, was despised, nailed to a cross, and died so that we could be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. So yeah, serving each other begins with a requirement. Deal with it. But you know what? At some point, our service must move from that. We have to move from a requirement to a response to Jesus' love. A response to Jesus' love, kind of called maybe gratitude, maybe thanksgiving. You see, Jesus always did what the Father told him. But his service to his brothers went well past obligation. Back in verse 1. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. I know I've said it a couple times this semester. Maybe at some point you'll believe me. The why will always determine how well the what is done. Jesus did things well. And the disciples experienced this deep love Jesus had for them. And in response to that love they experienced, they were called to do the same. You see, this whole illustration that Jesus did washing the disciples' feet was leading up to a new command that Jesus was giving his followers. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, giving you a new commandment, love each other. Talking within the body here. We are supposed to love our neighbor, don't get me wrong, but we are supposed to love each other within the body. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You see, serving others inspires people to serve. Serving others inspires a change. The world doesn't see this. They don't see people serve. Or they see people who are served because they've earned it. Jesus is asking us to serve people whether they deserve it or not because of love. And so, does the love that we have experienced from Jesus become our fuel? Become our passion? Become our motivation to serve other people? Or are we selfishly hoarding this gift that the Lord gave to us but always intended for us to give to someone else?
I've heard it asked many times by other ministers. Is Jesus someone you admire? Do you appreciate what He's done for you? That He has given you access to our Heavenly Father? He wants more than that. He wants to be your role model. We like it when Jesus did stuff for us. We appreciate it. But if your life isn't going in the same direction as Jesus, you got a problem. Let me see. Those, John, 1 John 2, 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Will you live like Jesus? It's a simple question. Bow your heads, close your eyes.